There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. Well, it's great to be a Christian, isn't it? And I have met so many people over the last 24 hours in your church who've come to know the Lord as their Savior and come into the family of God and come into this church family and just thrilling. And uh, thrilling to see all of you here on a Monday night. This is outstanding. Now, I've got to tell you that the dear sister brought me some tamales to eat and they're sitting on the front row, which means the sermon got much shorter some of you are saying, praise God, we've been praying for that. But uh, if these front row Christians start sliding down while I'm preaching, y'all let me know, all right? Uh, I hope you've had a good day today, and it's great to be back in God's house with God's people, to study the Word of God. Where would you like to go tonight in the Bible? You tell me, where would you like to go? All right, well, then let's go there. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you're just joining us, the congregation's not choosing the text. This is where we've been. I told one of the men a moment ago, I said, I'm going to have a little fun tonight. I'm going to get up and say, let's go to Zechariah tonight and just watch people's faces. But well, let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. How many of you read it today? Would you raise your hand? Oh, very good. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to ask you to read it again before we come back again tomorrow evening. And uh, in fact, don't read it. <clears throat> don't read it. Pray your way through it. If you really want the scriptures to open to you, don't read it. Pray it. When you turn the word of God into a conversation with the author, if you pray your way through a passage, verse by verse, line by line, turn the word around and send it back heavenward, I'm going to tell you what will happen. Your prayer will take on new substance because you'll be praying exactly what God wants to talk to you about. You can always know you're praying in the will of God when you're praying in the word of God. But not only that, the Bible will open up to you. You'll start seeing things in the Scripture you didn't see before. Do you know why? Because you're talking to the one who wrote it. Pray your way through the passage. Let's read just a little tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 1. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And I honestly am having a hard time getting past that. I really am. Every time I read it, I just want to stop and preach on it all over again. The meekness and gentleness of Christ. I read somewhere that Napoleon, uh, late in life, stood on a rock on St. Helena and said to one of his aides in a very dejected kind of way, he was looking out over the empire, and in a very dejected kind of way, he said, my empire has passed away because it rested on force. 
And then he paused for a minute and said this, but the empire of Jesus will always last because it was built on love. It's powerful, isn't it? May I say to you, this is what we need, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. A world filled with hatred needs a church filled with the love of Jesus. Jesus said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples, when you have love one for another. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I'm present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. May I tell you what the parallel to that is? Is Jesus saying to the disciples, you're in the world, but you're what? Not of the world. Look at the verse. You are in the flesh, but you don't war after the flesh. You, you may live in the same world and have to deal with the same things, but you don't deal with it the same way as a lost man because it's not your power, it's God's power. And here's the verse we studied last evening. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Aren't you glad that God's mighty power is more than enough? We're picking up tonight right where we left off. Notice the last expression in verse number four, the pulling down of strongholds. Now, that thought is continued in the next verse. Look at verse number five. He's got the pulling down in verse four and in verse five, the casting down. Do you see it? In verse five, casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. May I ask you, you don't have to answer out loud, don't even raise your hand, but may I ask you, are you ready for God to speak to you tonight? Well, here's the greater question. Are you willing to obey? There's a lot of people come to church meetings and they want to hear a sermon. They want to hear something. They want to learn something. There are a lot of people that would even say they're ready to hear from God. May I say to you, if you're not willing to obey what God's about to tell you, you're not ready to hear. Because Jesus doesn't wait for you to weigh what he says to see whether you're going to obey it or not. Jesus said, if any man will do my will, he shall know of the doctrine. Would you like, would you like to understand more? Then do what God's speaking to you about. We deal here with the spirit of obedience. I want you to take your pen tonight and mark two expressions in your Bible. In verse number 5, it's my subject for this hour. I'd like you to mark in the first half of the verse this little expression, every high thing. Do you see that? Every high thing. And then at the end of the verse, I'd like for you to mark this expression, every thought. Every high thing, every thought. And I want to speak to you for a few moments tonight on every thought and everything. Somebody says, what does Jesus want from me? You really want the answer? Every thought and everything. We've developed a Christianity to our own liking. Where we give the Lord the parts we want to give him and we hold back the parts we want to keep. And we sing a lie when we stand and sing, I surrender what? But we haven't. And over somewhere in the recesses of our lives, there's a thought. There's a thing unyielded and surrendered 
unconsecrated to Jesus Christ. Oh, oh, it belongs to him. Oh, it belongs to him because the Lord Jesus not only owns you by creation, he owns you by redemption. He, he bought and paid for you. And yet somewhere there is that part of life that is not truly under his control. May I ask you tonight, how much of your life is Jesus really Lord of? We like to hear the preacher preach about Jesus being Lord of all. But we really, we really don't want him to meddle with the all in us. It's the all out there we want him to be the Lord of. And I say to you tonight that our God is a thorough God. He does no halfway work. No, no. He goes all the way. The Bible says that he wants to sanctify us and preserve us both spirit, soul, and body under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, friends, he doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. In the words of Scripture here, every thought and everything. The question is not, does God want all? Does he deserve all? The question is, have you truly yielded all to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Let me testify a moment. Because the Lord's using this passage in my life right now. See, see, the sword cuts both ways. It really is a two-edged sword. And, and frankly, the last few days, it's bloodied me. It's just bloodied me. Everybody wants the Bible to comfort. They don't want it to cut. They love the Scriptures to make them feel better. But now, Lord, we want the healing but not the wounding. And the Lord says, no, that's, that's not the way it works. It's, it's cutting me right now. You see, the truth of the matter is, every one of us have our besetting sins. Hebrews says that. We're to lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us so we can run with patience the race that is set before us. I'm convinced that preachers spend most of their time trying to get people to run the race who can't run the race because they're still weighted down with the besetting sins of their life. And we excuse them. Oh, yes, we excuse them. Well, you know, preacher, I'm not as bad as I used to be. And I'm sure not as bad as she is. Look at her. We compare ourselves among ourselves, which is not wise. We'll find out later in this chapter to later in our study. And we even sometimes blame somebody else. But when was the last time you got so real you could get right? When was the last time you got so honest and blunt with yourself and with God that you said about your sin what God said about your sin? And you stopped calling it something else and you called it exactly what God called it and said, Lord, that thought and that thing must be yielded to Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as a revival without repentance. And there is no such thing as a victorious Christian life without dealing with that area of defeat that keeps cropping up over and over and over and over and over and over again in your life. And for the record... Some of us who've been saved a little while and done battle with the devil and struggled with our own flesh, we've almost started to believe the lie of the devil. Well, you know, that's just the way I am. Let me use a deep West Virginia theological term for that. Are you ready? Hogwash. That may be the way you are, but that doesn't mean that's the way you're supposed to be. And it sure is not the way you're supposed to be if Jesus is Lord of all. Stop making excuses for your sin Stop looking at everybody else's sin and say, Dear God, I want to be right in every thought and in everything. The three great action verbs. You see, our God's a God of action. And he expects his followers to be people of action. And the three great action verbs 
in our verse tonight. I want you to mark them in your Bible because it's my conviction. These are the three things God wants us to take action on. Somebody say, all right, preacher, all right, I know. I know what it is, and I know you're right, but what am I going to do about it? I mean, I've tried and failed a thousand times to get past this, and I've just almost believed what the accuser of the brethren said, that you'll never get beyond this, and you're just stuck with this the rest of your life. No, 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 that's not true. Let's find out what God says about it. Here's the first one. But you mark in verse 5 the word casting. Here's the first great step. If you want to be clean and if you want to be in victory and if you want to live in the power of the Holy Spirit of God, then the first thing you've got to do is you've got to be willing to do some casting. The casting here literally means you attack the attacker. Too many Christians play in defense today. God says it's time to play offense. Remember, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That doesn't mean we're cowering in a corner somewhere. That means we're charging against the gates of hell. Watch, please. It means we're taking territory that the devil had claimed for his own. And we're saying, no, that doesn't belong to you anymore. That belongs to Jesus. So the Bible uses this expression, look at it, casting down imaginations and every high thing. There's a picture here of a castle. Of a stronghold. In fact, I hope you've marked the last part of verse 4 in your Bible. This stronghold. What is this in our life? It's that fleshly fort. That's what it is. It's a fleshly fort in you. By the way, if you're waiting on me to preach on your sin tonight, I may not name your sin, but the Holy Ghost has already told you what it is. Uh, look, look, again, I'm speaking for me. This preacher's under conviction because the Holy Spirit's been putting his finger on some things in my life. Even today, today, walking through the lobby of the hotel, God spoke to me about something. I got under such conviction, I said, God, forgive me. Lord, help me with that. Until we get that kind of frame of mind, remember where the battle is fought and where it's won and where it's lost is in the mind. Until we get that kind of mind, we're never going to see what God has for us. I'm not preaching tonight for us to have a revival meeting. I'm preaching tonight for us to live revived lives. And there's a world of difference between the two. And it must begin here with the negative, which means, look at it, please. We must pull down in verse 4, and we must cast down in verse number 5. Ancient Corinth was interesting because just outside the south part of the city walls, high up on a mountain, guess what they had? A fortress. They had their own fortress. In fact, the believers at Corinth would have understood exactly what Paul was talking about. They could have looked just outside the city gates on the south side up on the hill and seen that stronghold that had been erected so that in times of military attack, they could run to that place. Would you like to identify the stronghold of Satan in your life? Would, would you like to identify the fleshly fort in your life? Would you like to identify the thing that's not yet under the dominion of Christ, but it should be? All right, I want to help you. It's whatever you run to when you're hurting. You know what besetting sins are? They're the things we go back to again and again when we need a little escape. When we need a little relief. And I'm going to tell you the problem with that. Everybody hold your place right here just a second. And go back in your Old Testament to the little book of Nahum. I promise you that's in your Bible. It's there. It's in the Minor Prophets near the end. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And look at Nahum chapter 1. It's a powerful book, but look at this verse. Nahum chapter 1 and verse number 7. Oh, it's a good verse. You want a good verse to memorize? Take this one this week. Meditate on this as you leave tonight. Nahum 1 verse 7. The Lord is good. Amen to that? 
Oh, that's not all. If that's not enough, look at it. The Lord is good. A what? Mm. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Let me tell you why sin is so heinous and awful. You ready for this? Because it takes the place in your life that only Jesus should take. The only stronghold that ought to be in a Christian's life is the Lord. When you're weak, you run to Jesus. When you're tempted, you run to Jesus. When you're lonely, you run to Jesus. When you're under guilt, you run to Jesus. When you're tired, what do you do, church? You run to Jesus. Why? Because the Lord's our stronghold. Well, watch this. The devil will give you a cheap substitute. The flesh will erect some fort in your life. And when you get tired and weary and run down and exhausted and a little discouraged and so I say, I'm having a hard time. You know what our flesh wants to do? We don't want to run to God. No, no, that's not what we want to do at all. We want to run right to that stronghold that we've erected in our life to find a little bit of relief. And I want you to know there's a world of difference between fleshly relief and spiritual refuge. You don't need what sin can give you in the short term. You need what only God can give you in the long term. And what makes these imaginations and thoughts and besetting sins and strongholds so wicked and heinous, you ready for this, is they take the place that only Jesus is worthy of. Let me give you another word for stronghold. It's an idol. I've been praying for our friends in India the last few weeks. They're having a hard time. Pray for them. A couple years ago, I preached in India. and I, I honestly, I've been in different parts of the world. I've never seen anything like I saw in India. We had a giant gospel crusade, and I'm talking about by the hundreds they came to Christ, renouncing their idols. One old woman, the last night up in her 80s, came in her Hindu dress all the way to the front, clothed all in white. She had listened to an interpreter that night, and she said to the woman counselor, she said, I've come to renounce all of my idols, and I want to put my trust in the God of Virapandi. That's where we were. She said, the God that man talked about tonight, that's the God I want to be my God. It's powerful. And I got on an airplane flying back to the United States. And the Holy Ghost said to me, what about your idols? Oh, we, we want to preach on all their little wooden statues, but forget their wooden statues for a minute. What about the thing you've let into your home that's take the pla- taking the place only Jesus should take? What about the besetting sin that rules your life? And it's not just ruling your life, it's ruining your life. I'm going to tell you what God says do. Look, we're going to have to get vicious with this thing. Stop petting on your sin and instead realize it's the enemy of God in you. It's a friend of the devil in you. Pull it down and cast it down. What's the great purpose? The great purpose of that is this, that you never have the breakthrough till you deal with the stronghold. You know, honestly, Pastor, people want preachers like me to come in and preach some dynamic sermon, and we have a breakthrough. Oh, we had a breakthrough kind of service. Pardon me. But if you have a breakthrough, it won't be because of me. It'll be because you get real with God. Let's get Paul out of the way for just a second. That's what he's saying in this chapter. Let's get everything out of the way. Let's get everybody out of God's way. Let's let the Lord be so thorough with us that God can do what God desires to do. 
By the way, I've marked in my Bible, everybody look at verse number 4. When I stop, say the next word. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling what? Mark it, down of strongholds. And then in verse 5, casting, what's that next word? There must always be a tearing down before there's a building up. You want the Lord to build up in you? Then there's certain things that must be torn down. God withers while he grows. He puts some things to death while he speaks life to other things. So don't think you can grow in the Lord and have the joy of Jesus and make a difference for God as long as you're holding on to your sin. Can I tell you where God is near? God is near when we get low. That's when God comes near. Maybe our problem is we haven't gotten low Maybe we haven't gotten desperate enough over our sins and broken enough. Where's the humility? When was the last time you wept for your own sin? Your sin. Now, I get under conviction I don't weep for other sinners enough. But hold up just a second. Maybe the reason we're not weeping for their, their sin much is because it's been a while since we wept over our own sin. Casting down every thought and everything that rebels against the ruling presence of Christ in my life. Here's the second word. Would you mark it? It was not only a casting, but then would you mark the little word bringing? You see that word? Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You're not only casting down every thought and everything, now you're bringing every thought and everything into the holy presence of God. I'm going to tell you, when you bring something into the holy presence of God, it changes your perspective on it. In fact, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to stop loving your sin, and you're going to start hating your sin. You know why that is? Because you're going to start seeing it like God sees it. Is your sin ugly to you? I must tell you that other people's sin is uglier to me than my sin. And don't look at me so pious. The same thing's true of you. I mean, let me preach on somebody else's sin. Everybody says, that's right, preacher. Let them have it. But what when the Lord says, no, no, your sin? What must we do? We must bring it captive. Who do we bring it captive to? Everybody look at the verse. We don't bring it captive to ourselves. Do you know why that is? Because we can't control it. We bring it captive to who, church? Christ. Christ. Sound familiar? The meek and gentle Christ is the only righteous ruler of our lives. Look, please. The only one who can straighten out the mess we've made of things is Jesus. Oh, but when it comes under the control of Christ, let me just tell you, he's a mighty good king. He's the only king worthy of being submitted to. Matter of fact, go back to chapter 9 just a second. Look, look at the previous verses. Look at chapter 9, verse 13. Same people. He writes to them in verse 13, and he says, Whilst by the experiment of this ministration they glorify God, look at it, 2 Corinthians nine thirteen, for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ. He said, you professed that you submitted to the gospel. I'm preaching to the Monday night crowd. I know who I'm preaching to tonight. Look at me just a second. I'm preaching to a bunch of people, by and large, who have professed that you've submitted to the gospel of Christ. I say thank God for that. But watch how God's sanctifying work is going on here. It's not just about you getting saved, not going to hell and going to heaven someday. This God who had you submit to the gospel of Christ now wants you to submit to his ruling presence in your life. Bringing it to Jesus. You see how we keep coming back to the same subject we started on at the beginning of the chapter? Just bring it to Jesus. 
Just bring it to Christ. And what's the great goal? Everybody look at the verse. The Bible says in verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself. Do you see how it exalts itself? It lifts itself up. Tear it down. It deserves no place in your life. Only Jesus should be exalted in our lives. Exalted itself against what? The knowledge of God. May I tell you what sin will do? It will keep you from really knowing God. prophet said the lord's hands not shortened that it cannot save his ears not heavy that it cannot hear but here's the problem your sins your sins have separated between you and your god i'm gonna tell you the real problem right now the real problem is not in the world the real problem is in the church the real problem is not that lost people don't know god the real problem is saved people don't know god Oh, we know him as our Savior, but we've not gone on with the Lord. We're not growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're not going deeper with God. We're not exhibiting more of the power of God. And why is that? Because our sin has not yet been cast down and brought to the Lord Jesus. You know what temperance is? Temperance is not self-control. I heard that all my life. Temperance means self-control. Let me let you in a little secret, friend. You can't control it. Temperance is Christ controlling you. There are things you can control. For example, you can control whether you came to this meeting or not tonight. May I just say, thank you for coming. Everybody tell the person next to you, thank you for being here tonight. Just tell them right now, thank you. So now not a person here can say, nobody thank me for coming. No, you thank you for coming. And look, you can control your schedule. Listen to me, church. You can control your schedule, but you can't control your sin. Only Jesus can do that. So what must we do? We must cast it down, and then we must bring it to the Lord. Well, then notice, do you see the divine progression here? Look at the end of the verse. We're bringing into captivity every thought to, would you mark this word, obedience. So we're not only casting down every thought and everything that rebels against God. We're not only bringing every thought and everything in the presence of a holy God, but now we are obeying God in every thought and everything in our life. In other words, every part of us has one great mission. What is it? It's to obey God. Would you like to know the mark of a real revival? People get off their church pew and start obeying God. I remember one night in the church, a woman came forward. She said, I've been saved all, all these many years. And she said, I've never been scripturally baptized since I was saved. And she told the pastor that night in a revival meeting. She told the pastor, she said, I want to be baptized tonight. He said, well, the baptistry water's cold. We'll get it warmed up for you for Sunday. She's weeping. She said, no, sir. She said, I don't care if it's freezing cold. I'm not going to bed till I get baptized tonight. Somebody said, that's crazy. That's revival. That's revival. I saw another woman in her 80s. Met me at the door of the church one night. She said, I called my sister early this morning. Hadn't talked to her in 20 years. Asked her to forgive me. She said, we got restored over the phone today. Somebody said, what do you call that, preacher? That's revival. So let me just ask you right now. What has God told you to do you haven't done yet? Is there anything in you that shouldn't be there? And the Holy Ghost says, that's got to go. But you've been holding on to it. You better cast that down, bring that to Jesus, and obey God, or you're never going to live in victory. Never going to live in victory. Look, you can come to every revival meeting you want to. Listen to every evangelist that blows through town. You can listen to gospel music all day long. You can even read your Bible. But you will never live in power till you deal with that area of your life and get specific and personal with God. What about on the positive side? Is there any positive step God's told you to take that you've not yet taken? Somebody the Lord told you to witness to and you keep putting it off? 
something you're supposed to do to serve the Lord, but you keep delaying and procrastinating on it and saying, you know, I'm going to do that someday. No, no. Then you're not going to live in the power of God. Because here's how you live in revival power every day. Every time the Holy Ghost speaks, you say, yes, Lord, I heard what you said. I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to tell you what's been lost today, the spirit of obedience. The spirit of obedience has been lost. We want to come to church and somebody work it up and make us feel good. I'm going to tell you what it's become. It's become a bunch of religious entertainment for a bunch of disobedient Christians. And it's no wonder we haven't had an old-fashioned revival. It is time to obey God. Remember I said to you the battle is won or lost in the mind? What was the mind of Jesus? Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not Robert to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and humbled himself. Look at him going down. Look, Look at him going low. He humbled himself and became, what church? Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You want the blessing? The blessing is always connected to obedience. It is the spirit of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane that says, not my will, but thy will be done. I wonder, do you have that heart tonight? That's revival. I was preaching last week out of Isaiah 55 in another part of the country, and I came to that verse where the Lord said that my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I wonder, you content to live down here, or would you like to live up here where God's thinking and where God's living? We're content with so little when God has so much for us. Our weak, anemic kind of Christianity is void of the power of God. Our American Christianity is a cheap substitute for Acts Christianity. We need what only God can do, and you cannot access it as long as you're holding on to your sin. You can't be full of God and full of you at the same time. Look at the next verse, verse 6. And having a readiness to revenge all disobedience. What's he saying? He's saying, look, if you don't deal with it, I'm going to. God deals with disobedience. He does deal with disobedience. But here's what it ought to be. He said, when your obedience is fulfilled. Would you circle the little word fulfilled? How many of you would like to live a fulfilled life? Would you raise your hand? I mean, a really fulfilled life. Somebody said, I'm fulfilled. Do you know what the fulfilled life is? It's the life of obedience to God. The only way to be full is to be following Jesus and ready and willing to do whatever God tells you to do. And I want to ask you again, is there any area of your life where you need to cast something down, bring it to Jesus, and obey God? Years ago, I read the story of F.B. Meyer. How many of you know the name F.B. Meyer? F.B. Meyer is one of my all-time favorite authors. I love it. Love, Love reading him. A man who truly came to know God. But early on, F.B. Meyer went to hear a young college-age student named C.T. Studd. Maybe you've heard of him. C.T. Studd was a man who walked away from cricket, household name in England, quite an athlete, gave it all away to become a missionary. God used C.T. Studd. He was out and out for the Lord, I'm telling you. He married a girl named Priscilla. She was about as crazy about the Lord as he was. Literally, she came down the aisle at their wedding with a, with a banner across her wedding gown that said, United to do battle for Jesus. That's a woman right there, let me tell you. And they touched India and Africa. I'm telling you, God used them. When C.T. Studd was just 
a young man. He gave a testimony one night. F.B. Meyer was in the meeting. When, when it was done, Meyer said, I raced up the side aisle, and I took that young man by the hand, and I said, young man, I'm a minister, but you have something I don't have. And C.T. Studd looked him in the face and said to this man he did not know, well, let me ask you, have you surrendered everything to Jesus? And F.B. Meyer said, I was offended. He said, I straightened myself and arched my back and said, well, young man, I, I'm a minister. I, I write books and I preach and I teach the Bible. Of course I've surrendered everything to the Lord. F.B. Meyer said, I walked home alone that night by the riverside alone. And he said, the Lord started speaking to me. He said, I got to my house, took the keys out of my pocket and opened the door. And he said, I was in the house alone. He said, I went through the door, closed the door, still had the keys in my hand. And he said, at that moment, Holy Ghost conviction fell on me. He said, it was as if the Lord Jesus came and held his nail-pierced hand out and said, Meyer, I want the keys to your life. And Meyer said, in my heart, I handed him the keys. All right, Lord, you got it. You got it all. And he said, I stood there as the Lord Jesus counted every key. And then the master said to me, there's one missing. And Effie Meyer said, I said, yes, Lord, but that's just to that little closet back there. That's, that's just to that little room of my life. There's really not much in there. I, I know I've kept that for myself, but it's not much. And he said, at that moment, the Lord Jesus said to me, if I am not Lord of all, I am not Lord at all. Effie Meyer said, I watched the Lord Jesus sadly turn to walk away and I cried out and said, Lord, don't leave me like this. And F.B. Meyer said, on that night, I took the last lonely key of my life out of my hands. And I placed it in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. And my life has never been the same again. You want to see God do what only God can do? Then cast down every thought and everything. Bring every thought and everything into the holy presence of God and obey in every thought and in everything whatever it is God tells you to do. And I want to give you one illustration of it and I'm done. You know, preachers, we preach sermons and as a general rule, we end with some illustration. And I like using lots of illustrations like the one I just gave to you. But I've discovered some of the best illustrations are always Bible illustrations. And for the instruction, we've studied tonight in 2 Corinthians 10, I want to give you a little illustration of it, a picture of it in the Old Testament. Would you go with me quickly back to the book of Joshua? Now, I want you to mark this in your Bible. Please don't miss this. I'm going somewhere, and when I finish showing you this picture, I intend to ask you to do business with God. Look at Joshua chapter 3. You know the book of Joshua. It's the parallel to Ephesians. It's a book of fullness and victory and conquest and power. And look at Joshua chapter 3 and verse number 10. They're going into the land, and Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you. Let me just stop right there. How many of you would like to live knowing the living God's among you? Well, here's the mark. Look at it. And he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the, what's that say, church? I want you to mark that. The last group on the list, the Jebusites. Now, I want you to turn over just a few more pages to Joshua chapter 15. You don't have to go far in this book of conquest to see a footnote of failure. In fact, Joshua 15 is a, a long list of all the great conquest in Canaan. But sadly, you come to verse 63. What a tragedy. Joshua 15, 63 says, as for the Jebusites, 
the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah, could not drive them out. Hold up. I thought God just said he would drive them out. He did. I thought the man of God just stood up and said to them, the Lord's going to make it so all these groups are cast up before you. He did. Well, I thought this chapter is full of all these victories. It is. And then you come to verse 63. And suddenly the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But, yes, we just have to go and live with them, you know. The Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. Do you know who the Jebusites were? It's the last Canaanite control. Do you know who the Jebusites were? They were a bunch of Canaanites from a region perhaps you've heard of known previously as Sodom and Gomorrah. And Joshua and the children of Israel go in, and man, they're knocking down the enemies, and they're claiming ground. I mean, you know, Jericho falls, you know the story, and God is on the move. Then there's this one little group. But you know, honestly, in the great scheme of things in the whole nation, just one little group, I mean, how bad can it be? You know what I think? I think we probably could just let them stay with us a little while. I, I don't think it's going to mess us up too bad for the Jebusites to say. And for the record, notice where they lived. Did you notice where they lived? Everybody look at verse 63. What city did they live in? <laughs> How many of you know God had big plans for Jerusalem? Like this is strategic. This, this is spiritual. Can I tell you something? The bigger the battle, the bigger the battle, the more important it is. Some of you are doing battle with the devil and fighting fits with your flesh right now, and you're about to give up on it and think, you know, I'm going to throw in the towel. Listen to me. That battle's big because it's not just about you. God's got some big plans, and you're going to miss it if you don't let God be thorough with you. Keep going with me. Keep going with me now. Turn over to Judges just a second. Come with me to Judges chapter 1. Now, we're all the way in the next book of the Bible. I mean, you'd think by now, surely, surely these Jebusites would be gone now. Oh, no, look at this stubborn sin. Look at Judges chapter 1, verse number 21. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but, guess we're just going to have to live with them. The Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. You know the problem with most of us, including this preacher? We've learned to live with it. we just learned to live with it. We've settled for that sin. I mean, it's not so bad, really. Do you understand one little thing unyielded to God could be the one thing that keeps God's greatest blessing from your life and family? You know what I shudder at? I shudder to think of this. That I could spend my whole life in ministry and I could preach to lots of people, and I could study the Bible, and I could stand before Jesus at the judgment seat and hear the Lord say to me, Scott, I had so much more for you. Look at all these blessings. Look at all these answers to prayer I had. Look, look at all these things I was going to do. But you wouldn't let me. Because you had that stronghold. And you were more interested in holding on to it and hold on to me. And you kept running to it instead of running to me. And you let it be higher in you than I was high in you. Oh, God, help every one of us. What was Jerusalem? I'll tell you what Jerusalem was. It was God's city. Those Jebusites didn't deserve to be in Jerusalem. It's God's city. 
I'm going to tell you what your life is. It's God's. Hey, what's living in God's city tonight? What's got a toehold that became a foothold, that became a stronghold in your life and held a place that the Lord alone should have in your life? Somebody said, well, this is, this is rough, preacher. This is rough. Well, let me give you some hope. How many of you would like to end with some hope tonight? Okay, then come on over to 2 Samuel 5 with me because here's the rest of the story. David becomes king. I love this. What's his first order of business? <laughs> the Jebusites. You ever wonder why he was the man after God's own heart? I've heard lots of people try to describe that. That expression comes in the New Testament. The rest of that verse answers that question. The Bible says he's the man after God's own heart, which shall fulfill, here's the operative word, all my will. You want to know why David was so near the heart of God and so blessed to the Lord? Because he was a man, watch this, who wasn't content with halfway obedience. He wanted to do everything God told him to do. Nothing more and nothing less. That's the life God blesses. So here's what he does. He charges right up to the Jebusite stronghold. And the king and his men, verse 6, 2 Samuel 5, verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem under the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in thither. Would you like to know what's going on here? They're mocking him. Literally. You know what that verse says? They shouted at him from the walls of the city and said, I just want you to know, David, you can come in and try to take it if you want to, but our blind people and lame people can keep you from coming in. Somebody said, you don't mess with David. Fooey on David. You don't mess with God that way. You know the problem with some of us? We've been listening to our sin too long. Stop reasoning with your sin. It's unreasonable. And stop arguing with the devil. You can't win that argument. Let me tell you what you do. Look at verse number 7. Nevertheless, oh, I'd love the divine nevertheless. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of, what's that word, church? (laughs) Zion, the same is the city of David. Watch, it would be called the city of David. They would say, that's David's place. But David knew better. That wasn't David's place. That was the Lord's place. I love this. He doesn't even call it Jerusalem. What's he call it, church? He calls it Zion. Watch this. He saw that stronghold as something that rightly belonged to God alone. Maybe if we started seeing these areas of our life as rebel areas, outliers, maybe we started seeing ourselves as trespassers on God's property. Maybe, just maybe, we'd start to be able to have some victory over the stronghold. Keep reading. Look at verse 8. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind. Stop there just a second. Do you know how they conquered it? You can study history. There was a, there was a spring, the spring of Gihon, outside the, the ancient city walls of Jerusalem that was the water source into that city. Do you know what they did? They tell me they dammed up that water source and they went right in through that gutter. They went right in through the, through the source, watch it please, through the source into the city. You want to deal with your stronghold? Go to the source. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it and pass away. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Look, cut it off at the source and it will die for lack of interest. Keep reading. The Bible says, 
the lame and the blind that are, and I, I just saw this today. I never paid attention to this before. Hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherever they said the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Watch this, please. Somebody say, that's terrible. He hates the lame and the blind. No, remember, they're taunting him. Watch this. David hated the fact that there was any area that wasn't under the ruling presence of God and the reign of our Lord. Remember last night I talked to you about loving Jesus? If you're going to love Jesus, you're going to have to hate your sin. Notice what the Bible says in verse 9. Isn't this great? Thank you, Lord. So David dwelt in the fort. Hold up. How about the Jebusites lived there? Not anymore. Mm -mm. David dwelt in the fort and called it the city of David. And David built roundabout from Milo and inward. Oh, I love verse 10. Let's all read it out loud. Ready? And David went on and grew great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. Hey, let the stronghold become God's throne room. You want a victory for God? You want to let God bruise Satan in you? I'm going to tell you how to do it. Let that stronghold in your life become the very means by which the Lord gets the greatest glory in you. Let the Lord rule and reign where sin has ruled and reigned in you. And notice what God will do. Everybody look at verse 10. God will help you go on. Let's take a church vote. How many of you would like to go on? You want to go on for God? Look at verse 10. He grew great. How many of you would like to see something really grow great for the Lord right here? Would you raise? All right, good. And look at verse 10. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. How many of you would like to just know the ruling presence of God and know God's among us in this place? Would you like that? Watch. I'm sorry. You can't live in verse 10. No, I'm sorry. You're not allowed to live in verse 10 unless you live in those previous verses. Only as we do battle against our own wicked, rotten, devilish flesh and stop excusing our sin and being a victim and blaming everybody else and step up and say, Lord, I'm the one I've sinned. Forgive me and cast it down and bring it to Jesus and obey God. Only then can we know God's fullest blessing. What does the Lord want? Every thought. If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.